Well, hello, New Life Friday night. Hi, my friends. Find a seat if you are so inclined or keep chatting, I don't mind. It's so good to see all of you. Happy summer, happy Friday. For those of you parents, teachers, school administrators, commuters who live by school crosswalks, we made it through the school year. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, yes. Um, Tonight is a very special night. Um, As we speak, we have a team of 10 of our very own friends from Friday night going across the world to Israel. So when you think about them over the next 10 days, say a special prayer for them. Um, They're going to be doing some beautiful work. But tonight, we have the privilege of being together and being in God's word. I have the honor of, I guess I should introduce myself if I have not had the privilege of meeting you. My name is Jordan Lewis, and I'm one of the pastors here at Friday night. I'm so delighted that y'all are here if I know you or if I don't yet. Um, But I have the privilege of concluding our First John series, and so we are going to do that tonight. If you have your Bibles, will you please open up to 1 John chapter 4? If you have your smartphone, you can scroll to the Bible app. If you are not going to do either one of those things, then it'll be up on the screen. So we are in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, and it reads like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And all the people of God said, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are high and lifted up. You are exalted among your people. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, adore you. And we honor your presence with us tonight. As the word is spoken, as hearts are opened, God, your word promises that the entrance of your word brings light. So I pray that hearts would be illuminated, mine included. I pray that minds would have understanding and revelation. God, I pray that the hungry would be satisfied with your love and the broken hearts would be revived with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, we are in our first John series and we will be concluding in some form or fashion um, our series tonight. And the thing that I've loved about this letter from John is that it feels kind of like a family letter to me. As we read through John, he's using phrases like beloved, little children, young men, young people. And it's just this fatherly advice kind of familial tone. Now, John, at this point, when he's writing the letter, is an elder in the church. He's been around the block, seen a few things, heard some things, right? And he's writing this letter to let the people, the church, know 
hey, like I am one of the last eyewitnesses to have been with Jesus when he was bebopping around, you know, Jerusalem and whatnot. And I want to make sure that we don't forget where we come from, that we don't forget what we believe, that we don't forget who we are. That's kind of the nature of this letter. And so to me, I say it's a family letter, even though there's no way John was related to all the people he was writing to. But I say it's a family letter because if you do family the way I do family, family is a very fluid term. For example, if I introduce you to my Aunt Brenda, I will have you know she is not actually my aunt, she is my cousin. But what happened was my mom, my mom's mom, my grandmother, is one of 13 kids. My mom has 65 first cousins. So there was a group, I know, y'all, listen, yes. (laughs) Big family, to say the least. So there was a group of about 10 of them um, who were born around the same year, grew up at the same time, and are all now around my parents' age in their 60s. So when I'm a kid, it's kind of weird to call someone who's, you know, old enough to be my mom, Brenda. So it was Aunt Brenda, even though she's my cousin, right? Same for Aunt Pam, Aunt Dee Dee, Uncle Barry, and Uncle Gary. They are all my cousins, for the record, right? Now, if I introduce you to my Uncle Charles, he is not my uncle, and no, he is not my cousin. Uncle Charles and I are not related at all. He is one of my father's friends who I love very much and decided one day against his will to adopt him as my uncle. So it is Uncle Charles, right? If I introduce you to my big brother, Blake, his wife Liv is over here. When you see me and Blake together, you will know we are not related or somebody was adopted. What happened is Blake and Liv are two of my favorite humans on the planet. And so I saw fit one day to elevate them from friend status to sibling status, even though Blake is not my brother. But if I introduce you to my brother, Josh, he is indeed my brother and we are related, right? So for me, again, family is a very fluid term. So when I say this is a family letter, to me, that makes sense because I'm like, y'all are my family, you're my family, if I say so, apparently. And what I love about this letter from John is that he is a father to the church. He is a father to these believers, and he's not going to leave them out on their own. He is going to say, you know what, little nieces and nephews, let me bring y'all in and give you some of our family history. But I don't relate to this letter just because I like to be fluid with family, and so does Uncle Johnny, which is what I'm going to call him from here on out. I, as I was reading this letter, I was like, I, I know this voice. I know this tone. I know this, this fatherly, fatherly correction. I, I this sounds familiar to me. And that's because as I was reading the letter, I said, ah, this letter reminds me of my Uncle Herbert. Now, if you're wondering, my Uncle Herbert is my biological uncle. He is um, one of the older brothers of my father. And Uncle Herbert, if y'all were to meet him, first of all, you would hear him before you meet him because he is the loudest person I have ever encountered in my life. Uncle Herbert is what I call a character. He is vivacious. He is loud. He's a military man, was in the army for over 25 years. He's got this buzz cut white hair. Buff guy can outrun any 25-year-old, I swear. And he has these amazing gold teeth where he's like, I don't need white caps. I'm going to do gold. And that's just my Uncle Herbert in a nutshell, talking about Carolina barbecue and football and whatever else. But the thing also about my Uncle Herbert is that as he's gotten older, he is the oldest brother of my father's sibling. There are six of them. And the, the older generation has been passing away. My grandma Nancy has passed on. My, my grandpa Herbert, um, who my uncle is named after, has passed on. My great uncle King George has passed on. So the older generation is passing on. And as this is 
that has been happening, Uncle Herbert has kind of said, you know what, who are the Lewises? And what, what are we about? And where do we come from? And what's our identity? And as the older generation is passing on, how do we maintain this family identity? And Uncle Herbert, you know, in addition to being the loud one, the one vivacious one, the one who has opinions about everything, has now become kind of like the family genealogist, the family historian, kind of being the one to preserve the family history, the family legacy. And as a matter of fact, this has been so on his heart that next week on June 10th, my parents, they live here, they're going to fly to North Carolina. My Aunt Annette and Uncle Will are going to fly to North Carolina to meet up with all the family there to have a bit of a family reunion, kind of a family meeting to say, okay, how do we maintain our family history and who are we? And as I look at this letter from 1 John, that's, that's what I think about. That's what I think, you know, who I'm going to call Uncle Johnny. He's like, how are we going to maintain our family identity? And I think these verses in verse 7 through 12 do that for us. But what I love also is that Uncle Johnny isn't just like, oh, my little muffins, like, it's fine. You know, we love God and he loves us and that's it. Uncle Johnny's like, no, let me tell y'all something about something. Like y'all are going to know who you are, what your identity is, because darkness is no joke. And I'm not going to let my nieces and nephews not know what's happening. So in this letter, there's a little um, phrase, maybe y'all have heard it, but if you want to boil a frog, put it in cold water and then slowly turn up the heat. Because a frog is no dummy. If you try to put the frog in hot water, it's like, you're not trying to kill me. Not today. I'm out, right? But if you put it in cold water and turn it up, that's how you boil a frog, so they say. So I feel like in this letter, that's what Uncle Johnny is doing. He's slowly but surely turning up the heat. In the first few chapters of 1 John, it's kind of, okay, like y'all are strong, confess your sins, and God will forgive you, and love one another, and just kind of this genteel tones. You know, there are some ebbs and flows, hashtag Antichrist in chapter 2, but for the most part... Uh, He's being very consistent and just kind of sweet, you know, about his, his reminding the people of God of who they are. But, you know, toward in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, Uncle Johnny really starts, the temperature is rising in the letter. He starts turning up the heat, saying things like, hey, we have responsibility for how we take care of each other. And also be careful to discern the spirits. Be careful what you're saying and who you're saying things to, right? And so in this letter, I feel like these verses in uh, 7 through 12 are really kind of the hinge point of the letter. This is the meat of what Uncle Johnny wants to tell the church that he was writing to and also us tonight. So let's go back to the verses. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Straight out the gate, Uncle Johnny gives us our family identity by saying two things. We are born of God and we know God. And when I think about being born of God as our major family identity, I think about the movie Black Panther. And maybe some of y'all have seen Black Panther, rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman. But in the movie Black Panther, if you haven't seen it, the main character is Prince T'Challa. And he is um, heir to the throne of the kingdom of Wakanda. And what happens in the movie is that his father, King T'Chaka, dies. And it's not like how it happened here where Queen Elizabeth passed away, King Charles is now on the throne. It was a natural succession plan. In the movie, there are five tribes that make up the kingdom of Wakanda. And so for Prince T'Challa to become heir to the throne, he actually has to fight 
another tribe to win the throne fair and square. So they go into this tribal ritual where they're fighting. And he has to have his superpower stripped away. Um, and he's fighting and it looks like he's losing, right? And so everyone is stressed out because they want Prince T'Challa to be the rightful king of Wakanda, right? But it looks like he's about to lose to this opposing tribe leader. But then the queen mother, played by Angela Bassett, yells out, tell him who you are. Tell him who you are. And Prince T'Challa doesn't say, oh, I'm the Black Panther and I've been with the Avengers. Here are my accomplishments. Here's my resume. Don't you know who I am? He doesn't say, oh, like I'm a global diplomat and I've been everywhere and you've been nowhere. Don't you know who I am? He says, I am Prince T'Challa, son of King T'Challa, and lets out this battle cry and ends up winning and becoming the rightful king of Wakanda and the church said amen, right? (laughs) And so... In the same way where Prince T'Challa, Black Panther, could have listed all these accomplishments and could have listed all of these things, the thing that he says when he is fighting for the throne is, I am a son. That is what he says. And so when I think about this letter, these verses 7 and 8 from Uncle Johnny, when he says we are born of God and we know God, he is positioning us with our rightful identity. Because in the same way, we have a king King Jesus, who has ascended. And we do not just get the succession to the throne willy-nilly because we said yes to God. We have a real enemy. There is real darkness. There is a real antichrist spirit. There's a real way that we need to discern the spirits. There is serious tension between the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that Uncle Johnny talks about in chapter two. And so there are these tensions that we need to fight for. And our accomplishments are not gonna cut it. Our long list of things that we've done right are not going to cut it. Who our parents are and whatever they did is not going to cut it. We need to know that we are sons and daughters, and we need to know who our father is. And that is the only thing that is going to help us push back the darkness of this world that the enemy is relentlessly and ruthlessly putting upon us. And the thing that I love about these verses as well is that before we were anything, we were family. Before we were anything, we were family. Before we were good or bad, before we were accomplished or not, before we were you know, rich or poor, we were family. And that's still who we are, our identity today. Family is our first identity. We weren't born of our own will, we were born of God's will. So that's the first thing, being born of God. The other thing is to know God. That word to know in the Greek is the word gnosko, which means to know by personal experience or personal encounter. Uh, Last week, I was with my nephew, and if you're wondering, yes, he is my actual nephew. I was with my nephew, um, and he was wearing a Biggie Smalls t-shirt. And if y'all aren't familiar with Biggie Smalls, he's a rapper from the 90s, okay? My nephew is 13 years old, so I don't know where he got the t-shirt from or what was happening, but I didn't ask any questions. All I said was, oh, nephew, I like your t-shirt, Biggie Smalls, that's cool. And he looks at me, he says, oh, you know Biggie Smalls? Name one song. And I was like, I did not come here to be challenged by a 13-year-old, but also I can't name any songs. I just like your t-shirt. And he proceeds to name five different songs, which I don't know how he knew because he was born in 2010, last time I checked. 
But the thing with my nephew is he didn't just want to hear from his auntie, oh, cool t-shirt. He wanted to know, is there substance to what you're saying? Or do you know what you're talking about? Which in this particular case, I did not, but that's neither here nor there. Um, So this word to know, Uncle Johnny is saying, you can't just be born of God, but there also has to be evidence or proof that you've been in relationship with God, that you have evidence or experience with God that you know what you're talking about, that there's substance to what you're saying. And how we know that, and he gets to this later, is by saying God is love. God is love. And so some of you are like, yo, this is kind of intense. Like, you know, he's using beloved and little children and all of that. And, but this, this temperature is rising. The heat is on. We have to, you know, have substance. We have to know where we come from. But for me and my family, again, Lewis's are just a different type of tribe on our own. For us, correction is a love language. So for me, I'm not put off by the fact that there's all this affectionate language with correction. That's how things are in my family, and that's how we show each other that we love each other and are going to encourage each other by making sure, hey, we're not going to put you out on the street or let you act any type of way. We're going to make sure that you come correct, as they say, that you're going to do the right thing. And so in my family, nicknames are very common. My dad is prime example. He calls me Buddy or Lady J. I don't know the last time he called me Jordan, right? Which is what he named me at birth. But it's always a nickname. So my dad, even when he's in a good mood, he'll say, Buddy, you know, how you doing? How was church? How's so proud of you for what you're doing? Right? It's always Buddy. But it's also Buddy when he's my unofficial financial advisor. So it's also Buddy when he's looking at my financial statements and he's like, ah, books, books, books books. Like, you know, you could save more if you stopped spending so much money on books, to which my eyes glaze over and I'm like, that's never going to happen, you know? Um, But whether it's something positive or something corrective, um, it's always buddy. And that's how I think of John's use of the word beloved. But also with this tone of um, affectionate nicknames and fatherly advice, it really shows Uncle Johnny's heart for us. This is a man who knows the weight and authority of what he has lived through. This is a man who has seen the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus and wants to make sure that that family history, that collective identity is alive and well in the church. So much so that in these five verses, seven through 12, he uses the word love 13 times. Talk about repetition. Love, 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 love. And we don't really know the significance of this because in our day and age, love kind of has this soft, sticky, sweet connotation to it. We use the word love for everything. I love dried mangoes and I love my sister. I love my friend Christina and I love going to the art museum. And of course, we don't mean the same thing when we use love. But in English, we have one word really that we use all the time. But that's not true in the Greek, which is the original language of this text. There are four different types of love in Greek. There is eros, which is romantic love. So think Usher, Luther Vandross. Some of you think about Taylor Swift, whatever, to each their own. That's eros, okay? There's also um, storge, which is parental love. There is phileo, which is brotherly love. Think Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And then there's agape, which is divine love. And so when we read this text and we see Uncle John using the word love, 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 love all the time, it's important for us to know, okay, what does he mean by that? In each of the 13 times, it is the word agape, which is divine love. 
in our culture, we've kind of diluted love in some ways um, to just this, I call it the white chocolate type of love, which shouldn't exist at all. I'm like, who said that mostly cream and sugar could be called chocolate? Like that is not what chocolate is. I am personally offended, right? I am a dark chocolate person. So 75%, 80%, that's what I want, right? And so when Uncle Johnny is talking about this divine love, this agape, he's talking about 100% cacao, the most bitter, gets in your throat, grows hair on your chest type of thing. It is the most intense love. And this is, this is the type of love that he uses 13 times in the five verses. And what's important about us knowing what type of love he means, it's that agape is the divine love that only comes from God. That is the love that inspired God to send his son to die for us. That's the love that motivated Jesus to go to the cross. And that is the love that Uncle Johnny is encouraging us, commissioning us to live by toward God and toward each other. And so, okay, here we have love, this agape, this divine love. But what else does Uncle Johnny say to us in the text? Let's go to verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Here is kind of like a family secret, if you will, that Uncle Johnny's giving us. And in essence, love is not a concept. Love is a person. And what he is telling us, in essence, is that love is the person of Jesus. And so when he says God's love was made manifest, that's God's love was made tangible, real, and present. Love was not an abstract thing. It's not an abstract concept. Love has flesh and bled and was cut and was bruised and walked among us. That is what love is. And you think about it where Uncle Johnny's giving us this hint, this reminder that love is a person and it's the person of Jesus. And it's almost like we get to know the family characteristic, which is if you're gonna be in this family, it's love. That is the motive, that is the way, that is the focus. For me and my family, I take on my family characteristics. I have my mom's intellectual curiosity. I have my dad's goofy sense of humor. My sister and I, when we speak, we have similar cadence to our voice. My brother and I have similar hobbies and interests. So what Uncle Johnny is saying is, when you are in the family of God, you will practice divine love, this agape love, and that is the characteristic of how people will know or recognize that you belong to the Lord. It's reminiscent of John 3, 16 which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the same energy, the same spirit in this text. Now let's go to verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that on our behalf, God sent his son Jesus to appease atone for our sins. And in essence, this text is saying, we didn't start this, God did. We didn't start this, God did. It can be a little bit confusing in our culture. Um, For those of you who are Christians, you know this. For those of you who aren't, I highly recommend it, no pressure. Um, But for those of you who who are Christians, uh, it's, it's 
kind of confusing to say, okay, we didn't start this, God did, but I'm the one who prayed the salvation prayer. I'm the one who showed up at church tonight or I'm watching online. I'm the one who's reading my Bible and goes to Bible studies or prays or, or does the things. Aren't I the one who's perpetuating this? No. The only reason you can do anything that you're doing is because it is motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We think about it. Yes, amen. We think about it with babies. Babies didn't ask to be here. None of us asked to be here. We just one day showed up into the world, right? When a baby shows up into the world, they are cute, they are adorable, they are precious, they are innocent, and they are ignorant. They don't know anything. They don't know how to talk. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to walk. They don't know anything. Babies learn over time by imitating us. Even as they grow, toddlers have to be potty trained, bless the Lord. Even as they grow older, kids need to know the alphabet. They need to know math. They need to know all these different things. And in the same way that, we, that babies and people learn different things over time as we age, Uncle Johnny is reminding us that, hey, we didn't start this. We weren't the first ones to show up. We have to learn love and we grow into it over time, like how a baby does. And he also wants us to remember that it isn't our goodness that makes God love us. I think it'd be easy to kind of read a text like this and feel a little bit of pressure. Like, okay, I got to make sure I love and I got to make sure I, you know, don't say anything bad and don't do anything bad. Like, that's not it. The good news is that because we didn't start this, the fuel and the power to continue this doesn't come from us. And what John wants us to remember is that it's not our goodness, it's not our effort. God saw our sin and sent his son to be the atonement, the propitiation for our sin. And that is the life that we live from, that's the life we respond out of. And if we didn't start this, what's our response? The last two verses, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Later on in chapter four in a couple of verses, 19 and 21, it says, we love because he first loved us. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'll put it this way. The standard of love is the cross. We are commissioned and commanded to live a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life. This is how we live. Some of you are asking questions about, well, how do I handle this person? How do I handle this thing? Like this. What do I do for school or what do I do for work? This. How do I handle my family? This. A cross-shaped life Your mind, head's pointed upward. Your mind is focused on things above. Your heart is out forward, forward to other people, forward into the world. Your arms are outstretched to others. Your feet are planted in the here and now. Mind set on things above, heart forward to others, arms outstretched, feet planted in the here and now. And in our... In our day and age, it's really easy to want to live like this. Head down in the sand because of fear or head forward to try to figure things out. Arms closed to protect yourself because you don't trust anybody. Heart closed up to protect and feet going every which way trying to settle your heart. 
That is, is the temptation of the world. That's what having a mind focused on darkness, that's what it can do. But when we talk about living a life like this, that's the standard. When we say yes to the family of God, we are saying yes to the cross. Jesus said, pick up the cross daily and follow me. And the good news is that is an intense way to live. This is 100% cacao, right? Dark chocolate here. But no white chocolate, not in this house. Um, But again, we don't do that in our own strength. We can only do that because we are fueled and motivated by God. And it goes like this. John 15, 13 says, no greater love has anyone than this, than to lay down their life for their friends. The band can come back up. When I think of a cross-shaped life, I think of my grandma, Nancy, who's the mother of my father and my uncle Herbert, who I mentioned earlier. The reason I think about my grandma, Nancy, wasn't because she was rich, wasn't because she was famous, wasn't because she um, did all these amazing things that people would think of are impressive in her lifetime. I think of my grandma, Nancy, because she was a single mom to six kids in North Carolina, raised them on her own. She was a tobacco sharecropper. And if those of you aren't familiar with sharecropping, um, basically you have a, uh, for, you work 12, 14, 16-hour days, back-breaking labor, um, in exchange for a little plot of land and a little home and small wages. It is really um, not uh, a path to wealth or ownership at all. But that's all she had. My father's first memories are, you know, when he was little, five years old, um, picking tobacco in the fields with, with, his, grandma, with his mom, um, my grandma. I think of her not because she had this amazing career. I think of her because my dad told me that in the winters, he and two of his brothers, my Uncle Don and my Uncle Tony, would have to huddle in one bed together. There was no heat in the house. They had an outhouse down the way. And they would huddle together in the North Carolina winter, and it would be so cold that you could blow and see your breath in their bedroom. They would have to sleep with their hats on, with their coats on, just to stay warm. Many winters like that. I think of my grandmother, not because she was able to provide the best for all of her six kids. They were living on food stamps. They were struggling. Sometimes they didn't have anything to eat. I think of my grandmother because she laid down her life for her six kids. And there is no greater love than that. And those six kids are the same kids who next week are going to fly in planes and meet up together to talk about the legacy of their mother and see how can they maintain that history? How can they maintain that identity? And some of you are wondering tonight, ah, like I'm, I'm having such a hard time. I, I don't know who I am. I've made so many mistakes. I, will I always be under this pressure? Will I always be so oppressed? Will I always struggle so much? I don't know the answer to that. My grandmother struggled. She died at 81, struggled her entire life. She died of Alzheimer's a few years back. I don't know if the struggle will ever lift. But I do know that a life lived by the cross, a cross-shaped life, is a life that will always make a difference. It will always make a difference. Amen. Please stand with me if you are able.
The team is going to lead us into a moment of communion, moment of worship. And as we go into this song, um, the communion service can come forward. I want y'all to think about how first, what Jesus has done for you and think about what the cross means to you. And I also want you to think about how the Lord may be inviting you to live a cross-shaped life. There are people in this room who are on the cusp, people in this room who are uncertain of their eternity, people in this room who are unsure if they're going to see the Lord, if something were to happen to them tonight, what that would mean. And I want you to know you don't have to be uncertain. The spirit of the Lord is in this room and he is ready to meet you. He cares about you. He loves you. And all you have to do is say, I receive it. I receive the Holy Spirit. I receive what Jesus has done for me. That's it. So we're gonna go into this song, come down and around and receive communion, and then I'll come back up to lead us. Oh, the perfect. 